Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we meet a physicist who studies the infrasound created by rockets as they travel through Earth's atmosphere. Stick around to find out how she does it. But first, I speak to an astrophysicist who has devoted much of his career to creating the telescope array that's just given us that amazing image of the region surrounding the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Last week, scientists working on the Event Horizon Telescope unveiled the first image of the so-called shadow of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Now, unless you've been living in a bubble since the 12th of May, you'll have seen this iconic donut-like image splashed across the news media. To chat about this image and how it was taken, I'm joined down the line by Shep Dolman, who's the founding director of the Event Horizon Telescope. Shep is at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in the U.S. Hi, Shep. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. A pleasure to be here. So, so this already famous image looks a bit like a squashed donut with three bright blobs and a dark core. And I suppose what it is, is a radio telescope image of the region around the black hole Sagittarius A, which is at the center of our galaxy. But what, what exactly are we seeing? What, what, what is the ring and, and, and why is there a dark bit in the middle? Yes, Hamish, I'm sure your listeners understand what a black hole is. So I'm not going to go into that necessarily. It's you know, an object with huge gravity and an event horizon, a membrane through which objects can pass but never return. And these black holes, no matter what size they are, but specifically these supermassive black holes that we've been imaging, attract all the material into a very, very small volume. So imagine you've got all this gas desperately trying to get into this, this extremely small region near the event horizon, and it naturally heats up to billions of degrees. So in a paradox of their own gravity, these black holes can sometimes outshine all the, co- the, the constituent starlight from their host galaxies. So they're really, really bright. And what this forms is, if you will, a three-dimensional flashlight that illuminates the twisted and distorted space-time around the black hole. And what we're seeing is a ring of light that's lensed around the black hole to our line of sight. And this is because what you're seeing is almost purely due to the Kerr metric, to to the twisted metric around the black hole. No matter how you light up that area, you're going to see this ring. And and so what we're seeing is the result of this extremely hot plasma, the unique space-time around the black hole, and you get this signature. Now, what is astounding about this signature is that it signifies that there are 4 million solar masses interior to the orbit that light takes around a mass like that. That is conclusive evidence that we're seeing a black hole. And and specifically for Sagittarius A star, we knew from the Nobel Prize winning work of Andrea Ghez and Reinhard Genzel that there was a compact object of about that mass at the center of the 
galaxy because they could see the orbit of stars moving around it. This now zooms in by a factor of a thousand to where only Einstein's theory can govern what we see. And this is now the proof we've been waiting for, that our own Milky Way galaxy is the host to one of these monsters. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it is really amazing when, when you look at the image and then, and then think of its significance, you know, pr particularly, um, you know, with reference to uh, the predictions of, uh, of Einstein and general relativity. And, and Shep, this image was taken by the Event Horizon Telescope, which is actually an array of different radio telescopes that are distributed around the world. Why is it necessary to use an array of telescopes rather than just one really good radio telescope? Yeah, this is a wonderful question. You know, what is the HD? How does it work? But I want to back up for one moment and, and remind you and everyone that what we're looking at is radio light. So we're not, this is not optical light that we might see with our eyes. This is radio light. And it comes primarily from the fact that the plasma surrounding the black hole has a lot of free electrons in it. And these electrons and the ions have swept in all the magnetic fields in this accretion flow that's feeding the black hole. So you get dynamically important uh, large-scale magnetic fields threading this plasma. And this gives rise to the well-known synchrotron emission. The electrons orbit very quickly around these magnetic field lines and give a characteristic radio brightness. So that's what we're looking at. That's one of the ways that Sagittarius star shines most brightly for us. So we know we need radio telescopes to see this particular emission that's illuminating the space-time. Now let's talk about angular resolution. So these are the smallest objects predicted by Einstein's gravity. So to see them at large cosmic distances, 55 million light years for M87, 27,000 light years for Sagittarius A star, you need to push angular resolution to its absolute limits. And the Event Horizon Telescope uh, derives the, the highest angular resolution possible from the surface of our planet. Uh, and we, it does it by linking radio dishes around the globe, synchronizing them with atomic clocks, having them steer and look at the same black hole at the same time, same instant, and then they record the data. These data are recorded on hard disk drives, like you might have in your laptop, and they're sent to a, a central processing facility on 747s, essentially. You can't beat the bandwidth of a plane filled with disk drives. <laughs> so we get all these, uh, the, all the data back, we, we crunch it, and essentially we reconstruct in silicon, in banks of CPUs, what an optical dish does by virtue of the shape of the dish. In an optical dish, light bounces off this parabolic surface, focuses at the same time at the, uh, at the focus, and that's where you put your camera. We delay with exquisite precision all the recordings that we've made, align them up precisely, play them back, and we recreate a data set as though we had a telescope as large as the Earth. Now, observing at these radio wavelengths not only gets us the angular resolution, of course, the diffraction limit is lambda over D. So at 1.3 millimeter wavelength, divided by the size of our planet, we're able just to see this shadow feature in the, in the galactic center. But what's more, there's an intervening plasma between us and the galactic center, which blurs the image. But that effect goes down with shorter and shorter wavelengths. So by going all the way to one millimeter, we can see through all that intervening gas. And then the hot gas that's 
madly trying to get on to the event horizon, that's hot and that can be optically thick as well. But thankfully, that also becomes transparent at a wavelength of one millimeter. So everything works out at this, what I call a Goldilocks wavelength. You know, you, we get the angular resolution, we can see through the intervening plasma, we can see through the hot plasma, and it's tuned to the size of the, of the shadow. So this is how the Event Horizon Telescope works and why uniquely it can see all the way to this, this smoking gun of, of general relativity. And this isn't the first time that um, that you've been in the Goldilocks zone, I suppose, with the Event Horizon Telescope. In April 2019, you and your colleagues, you obtained the first ever image of a black hole shadow. And that was of uh, an object, a supermassive black hole at the center of the M87 galaxy, which I think you've mentioned, and is about 53 million light years away. And I remember when I was speaking to you um, in April 2019 about that image, um, I asked you why you didn't look at Sagittarius A star first. Um, and you told me that it was much harder to image than um, the M87 black hole, even though it's much closer to Earth. Why is that? Why is, why was it, so, why is it so much harder to image? And, and how did you meet the challenge? Sag A star and M87 are not, with these iconic images are, are very, very different objects. The first thing to understand is that one M87 weighs about a thousand times more than the other Sagittarius A star. So on the face of it, you might think that they would present very different images. The fact that we see the same ring-like structure that matches the mass that we think both these black holes have is, is really stunning evidence that general relativity holds across many orders of magnitude. And when you take into account the fact that LIGO has heard stellar mass black holes merging with their ringing of space-time, now you know that GR seems to hold from, let's say, a black hole that weighs 10 solar masses to one that weighs 6.5 billion solar masses. Now, that's think about that for a moment. There's no other object we know of in the universe that has the same set of characteristics where one case can weigh a billion times more than another. You couldn't take a mouse, for example, and scale it up by a factor of a billion and still have a mouse. It would just collapse, right? Even a planet. So we have this case where uh, general relativity seems to hold. Now, the M87 black hole dynamically changes on much longer timescales than Sagittarius A star for the simple reason that the orbital period of matter going around that black hole is a thousand times longer. So during a night of observing, it essentially remains motionless. Okay, it, it, light would take about three weeks to go all the way around. This matter would take three weeks to go all the way around the M87 black hole. But for Sag A star, matter can orbit within half an hour. So during a night of observing, where we're trying to get all of our data from the Event Horizon Telescope and make a still image. Sagittarius A star is dancing in front of us. It's changing its appearance. So ideally, what we'd like to do is make a movie, but we don't have enough stations on the ground to fill in this virtual Earth-sized lens to do that. So we had to develop algorithms between the time that we made the M87 image and now to handle this variability. So we used many different techniques, you know, many different algorithms, and they all showed that we were seeing a ring. Sure, that's the, that's the primary mode of this image, 
but there were time variable components. And that gives rise to some of these brightnesses around the ring that you've seen. So you may have seen this image and you see three different dots. You know, those we think are a combination of some of the imaging algorithms we're using and also the intrinsic variability of SAG star itself. Now, this is really interesting, right? I mean, you can, you can throw your hands up and say, this is bad news. But of course, in the, in the Event Horizon Telescope project, we want to you know, make lemonade out of lemons here. This is one of the only places where we'll be able to study the dynamics around Sagittarius A star. So we're very keen to start studying flaring, uh, orbital material, you know, everything that makes life around a black hole interesting. That's what we want to study. And these would lead to new tests of Einstein's theory of gravity. And Shep, you mentioned LIGO, which has um, detected the gravitational waves from merging black holes. Now the Event Horizon Telescope is is observing uh, the area around black holes. It really is a golden era uh, for studying black holes. And I'm just curious, what's next? What's next for the Event Horizon Telescope? What's next for you when it comes to the study of black holes? It's, it's a great question, what's next? That's the question we always get, you know, from just about any audience. Uh, just seeing these black hole images is is really wonderful. It's just not to be understold. I mean, pinch yourself, Hamish, because this is the time when we'll be able to look back and say, we imaged black holes. We saw black holes in radio light, what we expected. This is the dawn of a new era of precision measurement of black holes on horizon scales. There's no going back now. There's a before and an after. And even now we're looking to turn these black holes into laboratories of extremes where we can continue to test Einstein's theory, but also the modes of accretion, jet formation, that, that tell us why the night sky looks the way it does. In M87, for example, we know there's you know, a jet that goes for tens of thousands of light years, powered by the spinning black hole at the center of M87. And it redistributes matter and energy on galactic scales. Right? How does that happen? Well, we have to understand the processes that hold at the event horizon. So that's what we're after. The, the other thing I would say uh, about LIGO, it, when the LIGO results came out, we were just over the moon. I mean, just wonderful, wonderful triumph. Um, but if you were out in the desert, you know, or, or you know, Africa, and you heard a lion roar, I mean, you would know there was some big beast out there. You would know that something was, was, uh, was afoot. But it's when you see the lion, you know, that's when you really know what to do, right? That's when you have this conclusive proof. Um, and so we're, we're entering this era where we're, where we're seeing these black holes and that is gonna catapult us into the next thing. The other thing I would say is that the, the, the Nobel Prize winning work of stars orbiting the black hole was magnificent, but it was so far away from the event horizon that it wasn't a conclusive case. It was kind of like seeing, to stick with the lion analogy, uh, bones with big teeth marks on them. You know there's something there, right? You know there's a monster, but you want to see the lion, you know, to know what to do and to, to understand the situation. So what's next is we want to focus on two things. One is the dynamics around the black hole, so we want to make movies. And the next generation Event Horizon Telescope that, that, that we're leading at at, uh, at Harvard-Smithsonian, along with uh, wonderful international colleagues, is to put more telescopes around the globe 
increase the bandwidth for sensitivity, look at new observing wavelengths that can see also deeply to the event horizon, and make snapshots on five-minute timescales that we can stitch together real-time movies of Sagittarius A-star and time-lapse movies of M87. Imagine seeing that image that you've seen dance before your eyes, reflecting all the activity around the event horizon. This is important because the orbital period of matter around the black hole also has to obey Einstein's equations. And they're different equations than the ones that light obeys. So it would be a completely different test of Einstein to time the orbits of matter. That's one thing. But even more intriguing is that the image we've seen, we believe, breaks down into nested concentric rings, each ring representing light that's gone around another orbit around the black hole. So there's a tufty ring, which is gently bent light to our line of sight, but there's an interior ring that reflects a light that's made a U-turn around the black hole. What's important there is that the light that makes a U-turn or full orbits is spends more time in the deep metric around the black hole. And so it's a much more exquisite barometer of Einstein's theory. So it will lead to whole new tests just on the light bending in addition to the orbital motion of matter. So this next generation instrument, we hope to get online over the coming decade, uh, first by 2026 and then fully by 2030. And that will give us black hole cinema. And we want to put everybody in the front row of that black hole theater. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I, I, I look forward to talking to you about that when, uh, when the film comes out. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast, Shep. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I'll, I'll also add just in closing that this is a, a team effort. You know, we started small and now we have a 300 plus person uh, collaboration and, and hats off to the entire team. It's been wonderful working with them. It's a real privilege. You can read more about the Sagittarius A-star image on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, First Ever Image of the Black Hole Shadow at the Heart of the Milky Way, revealed by the Event Horizon Telescope. Now we're back on Earth with Physics World's Margaret Harris, who speaks to a physicist who's found a creative way to study how sound travels through the atmosphere. I'm joined in the virtual studio today by Sarah Albert, a geophysicist at Sandia National Laboratories in the U.S. who studies an atmospheric phenomenon known as the acoustic duct. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first question. What is the acoustic duct? Okay, so infrasound is low-frequency sound below 20 hertz, so out of human hearing range, below that. But it's generated by a variety of natural and anthropogenic sources. And the path that infrasound travels through the atmosphere really largely depends on the temperature and the wind structure. And so this layering is similar to the temperature and pressure layering in the ocean, where the SOFAR channel exists which is this acoustic channel that allows sound to travel great distances. Baleen whales actually use that channel to communicate possibly thousands of kilometers away because sound travels so well in it. 
And you can think of it like an optical fiber, but instead of light, sound waves are bouncing back and forth in this area of minimum sound speed. Okay, so the SOFAR channel, that's sound fixing and ranging. Um, we've known about that since I think the 1940s, I guess with early submarines, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And this SOFAR-like channel in the atmosphere uh, has has also been known since around the 60s. Uh, there were projects during that time that kind of aimed to, to target that part of the atmosphere and determine if explosions could be detected that far. Though uh, there were never there were never really any documents or reports that came out of that, uh, but now we have softwares that use numerical methods to solve for the way that infrasound travels through the atmosphere, and almost always this channel shows up at about fifteen to twenty kilometers altitude, which suggests that sound should be ducted at those heights. And so like we have the sound fixing and ranging channel, the SOFAR channel in the ocean, I've sort of been calling this the Atmos SOFAR. So what does the atmosphere look like? What are the conditions like this 15 kilometers up? Right. So the atmosphere is a little more dynamic than the ocean. It changes on uh, shorter timescales. The way that infrasound travels through the atmosphere really depends on the temperature and wind structure. And at this 15 to 20 kilometers altitude, oftentimes we have a wind jet that forms. And so that really is what's dominating the sound being channeled at those altitudes. So let's turn now to the study you led to find out more about this atmospheric acoustic duct. So as I understand it, you sent up balloons with acoustic sensors attached to them at a time when you knew there was going to be a big noise in the atmosphere. Yeah, that's correct. So in order to probe the sound channel, we've launched solar balloons with infrasound sensors dangling from them during publicly announced rocket launches. So the idea is that these rockets traverse the layer where the atmosphere so far exists, and so they directly inject energy into that layer. And then we launch our solar balloons uh, during that time so that they, well, we, we launch them prior to the rocket launch so that they reach neutral buoyancy or float altitude by the time the rocket traverses that layer. And we've done this twice so far. The first time was during the Blue Origin NS-15 rocket launch out of West Texas in April of last year. And this is a space tourism rocket. So it goes up, hangs out for a while, and comes back down to land, effectively injecting energy into that atmosphere channel twice. And we were able to get one solar balloon up in the air that day due to local ground weather constraints. Um, but the balloon was at a range of about 400 kilometers, and we detected First, the direct sound wave from the rocket launch actually leaving the ground, and then the rocket ascent and descent through the atmosphere channel. And this is really exciting because it's the first documented infrasound detection of an airborne source on an airborne receiver, so the infrasound sensor on our balloons. And we also noticed that the descent signal was higher signal-to-noise ratio, basically a lot bigger and more obvious than the other two signals that we recorded. 
So does that tell you something about the fact that there there must have been some sort of change in the atmosphere at at, at the stratification different levels? Well, what what I'm thinking, we need to dive into why a little more, but I think it's probably a uh, a matter of the rocket coming from above the channel as opposed to coming from below. It's traveling faster than the speed of sound, so there's likely a shock carpet that forms in front of the rocket and that might be what's injecting more energy on the way down as opposed to when it's when it's going up through the channel. So what do these balloons look like? I mean, how do you how big are they? Are they the size of a house or the size of a car or what? So the the solar balloon design was really pioneered by by one of my colleagues, Danny Bowman, here at Sandia National Labs. And these balloons are, we typically use six meter in diameter balloons. So pretty good size, but not, not huge. Uh, but they're built from low cost materials like painter's plastic, charcoal dust, shipping tape, and occasionally hula hoops. And these are able to carry infrasound microphones up to 30, 40 kilometers altitude sometimes. We have to launch the balloons during the day because they rely on solar power. The sun is what provides us with the lift. So first we add some air to the balloon, just using a basic household fan. And then once the sun hits it, it starts to heat up that charcoal dust, which provides lift. And then we hand launch the balloons typically. So once they gain lift, we kind of just walk them out until they really start to take off. And this really helps for prevent the payload from dragging along the ground and becoming damaged. But in order to hand launch the balloons, the local ground weather conditions need to be sunny with low wind, which can kind of make things a little bit tricky when we don't always have those conditions. So we have multiple variables that need to align in order to successfully pull off our data collection. Locally, we need ideal weather. And then as for the rocket launch, we need it to occur during daylight hours in New Mexico, and then we need it to actually launch. So we have to get the balloons into the air in advance of the rocket so that they're floating by the time it takes off. But that also makes it really fun and exciting. So how did you get this idea to use other people's rocket launches as a means of, of testing this technology and looking for this acoustic duct? Really just because uh, that's that's what's available. So um, it would be pretty difficult to have our own source at that altitude. I mean, maybe you could set off an explosion at that altitude or we could launch our own rocket, but all of those are, are pretty expensive. And so I thought, you know, if we already have rockets being launched, um, it, they're relatively easy to follow. There tends to be a lot of uh, social media posts about them prior to launch. Um, space tourism is growing every year. So I figured, you know, why don't we just go after these um, and use them as sources of opportunity? So I guess you, that meant the fact that there's lots of public information means you don't have to sort of sit in your office at Sandia waiting for the folks at NASA or SpaceX or Blue Origin to sort of call up and say, hey, Sarah, get your balloons ready. We're about to launch a rocket. Exactly. Yeah. I just keep an eye on Twitter and uh, there are some, some other websites with rocket launch schedules out there. So I just keep an eye on those and 
wait for the next rocket launch. And, you know, we've been burned before when a rocket launch was scrubbed right after we got all of our balloons up. Oh, so, no. <laughs> yeah. So so there's really, you know, multiple things that, that have to occur for us to even be able to collect the data. You mentioned you've done some measurements on two different rocket launches. You know, what did you find in your study? What did those measurements tell you? Right. So for the the first rocket launch that we detected, the Blue Origin one, we're pretty confident that we were able to detect that within the Atmosofar channel, though we haven't necessarily verified that it exists yet because that's just a, a single data point. So we need to collect more more data to really verify it. But we also targeted a United Launch Alliance rocket launch out of California that was uh, in September of last year. And that one was three times as far away at a distance of about 1,300 kilometers. We had three balloons up during that rocket launch, but we didn't detect it on any of those infrasound sensors. And so we're not really sure if this is a function of the distance or if there's some fundamental lack of our understanding of the atmosphere channel, maybe it's a leaky channel, or maybe it's not actually always present like we had previously thought. But I'm pretty confident that if the atmosphere channel is present, then sound will be able to travel thousands of kilometers within it. But regardless of the fact that we didn't get a detection from that specific rocket launch, we did notice a lot of interesting background noise during that campaign. And that means that signals are traveling at that altitude. We just don't know exactly what is making them. So while we were able to make the first detection of an airborne source on an airborne receiver, it actually opened up a lot more questions for us as well as to characterizing the background noise, determining how far away we can actually detect sources in the atmosphere channel and those types of things. What sort of sound signal did you did you pick up that you weren't sort of necessarily listening for? Well, that's that's a good question and that's that's one of the the things we're trying to figure out. We picked up a lot of interesting signals, but we can't necessarily correlate them to a source just yet. I think an area of future research for this project, some follow-on analysis that I would like to do, is launch um, multiple arrays of balloons. So if you have six balloons, you could have two arrays of three balloons each and use that to geolocate a source. So future experiments, uh, for future experiments, we plan to do that and try to determine where these sources, the direction of these sources, so that we can get at that question of what's causing all the sound in the atmosphere channel. Excellent. So if this atmosphere channel does sort of blink in and out of existence, what could be making it do that? It's likely due to the dynamics of the atmosphere. You know, the ocean is pretty stable it changes on a lot longer timescales. But as we know, even from just walking outside, the weather can change on timescales of minutes, hours. 
So that could be what's happening in the Atmos so far channel as well. And maybe we just don't have, we just haven't taken high enough resolution measurements of the atmosphere to determine the timescales that it changes on. So, you know, once we know more about this Atmos so far channel, what causes it and what's, what makes it appear or disappear, what could we then do with that knowledge? Yeah, that that's a great question. So first, you know, we're directly probing the Earth's atmosphere by recording infrasound within the Atmosophar channel or at these altitudes. And this will tell us more about the dynamics of that channel and give us a better understanding of the Earth's atmosphere uh, as a whole. But we're really pushing towards a balloon-based infrasound network in the sky. And so up until the last few years, the focus for infrasound was on ground-based sensor deployments. But most of the Earth is covered by oceans, so you can't really place an infrasound sensor there. There is work being done to get to that problem, but it's not an easy problem to fix. But we can fill gaps in that global infrasound network that's on the ground using balloons in the sky. And a balloon network like that could be used to monitor remote volcanoes that don't have infrasound networks nearby or bolides entering the Earth's atmosphere. Presumably also, you know, human created explosions of some type as well. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Anthropogenic explosions have the potential to generate sound that can enter the atmosphere channel as well. So do you have a, a planned next rocket launch that you're targeting? Will you be out there with your balloons sometime soon? Yeah. So I would like to get another recording of a Blue Origin launch since, you know, we we showed that we could detect that previously. And they're launching again this Friday. So we plan on, on targeting that and trying to get some balloons up as long as, you know, the local ground weather works for us that day and Blue Origin gets to launch, then um, we should be able to collect some data. Well, I wish you happy listening then. Thanks. <laughs> Sarah Albert, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Sarah Albert, Margaret Harris, and Shep Dolman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester explores how we can cut the carbon footprint of scientific supercomputing in a conversation with an astrophysicist and a mathematical physicist. The podcast is called Cutting the Carbon Footprint of Supercomputing in Scientific Research, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.